we see everybody else putting on their best face and we're quite aware of our own not so great face. And so there's the anxiety of, do I measure up? Do I matter? Am I as good as all those other folks? Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Alan Fadling, co-founder of Unhurried Living, an organization focused on helping leaders be healthy so that they can maximize their impact. We discuss his new book, A Non-Anxious Life, a powerful and practical resource designed to help leaders and followers work through anxiety. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of ABHE. And we are honored to have as our guest this week, Alan Fadling. Alan serves as co-founder of Unhurried Living, an organization he started with his wife to help leaders rest deeper so that they can live and lead fuller lives. And I've invited Alan to discuss his new book, A Non-Anxious Life, which Alan, it's a real practical and personal book. And I appreciate you giving me a a copy to read, Um, but it it provides very, very helpful guidance for leaders and followers on how to navigate anxiety. To kick off our conversation, we have a a bunch of questions that we want to talk about with this subject matter, which is so incredibly important for us to, to talk about. But I thought maybe first, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit, share with us one instance that God used in your life to propel you forward. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad the book uh, is helpful to you as you've looked at it. Um, as far as a, a defining moment, I, I realized that as you and I talk, literally it was 34 years ago tomorrow, I was introduced to a practice that still today shapes a lot of my spiritual life and my spiritual leadership. And one of my mentors called the practice EPC, which stood for and stands for Extended Personal Communion with God. It was his way of personalizing the practices of solitude and silence, which are classic and historic. But for me as a hyperactive young pastor, to spend hours alone and quiet with God on a regular basis has been personally transforming personally healing, leadership inspiring. It has been probably the single most important practice of my life. And I was introduced to it, thankfully, in my 20s. How about that? So you say 34 years ago. So how frequently something that you do? Yeah. So the rhythm that I began then has been to set aside on average a, a day a month, whether that's part of a day somewhere nearby or occasionally a an overnight day at a nearby retreat center. It has expanded to where now once a year I set aside eight days to go to a location up in Big Sur, which is beautiful and amazing and very quiet, no cell coverage. To Again, just to, 
I see it as following Jesus to the lonely place to pray, as Luke reports. And that has been the discipleship rationale for why I practice um, this discipline. Yeah, yeah. So in those eight days, how, how long does it take for you to actually detox from, from all of the noise that we experience in life? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. This last summer, I spent two full days just on kind of inner steroids. Like I was still running and revving inside, measuring my retreat days in minutes, which is not how you're supposed to engage right, a retreat. But, right, right. But my leadership brain was still really on. Yeah. It wasn't until day three that I found myself going a little quieter inside, more receptive instead of active. So, you know, it, it takes a while. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. And, and what a what a great spiritual discipline. So let's let's jump into some of these questions. And they all uh, kind of revolve around uh, your book. And we we are, you know, the, the subject matter, you're, you're dealing with anxiety. And that's definitely something that in recent years and, and perhaps post covid has particularly come on the radar in the news and research this uptick in recognition of anxiety, is it the fact that we are noticing it more or is it that we are uh, more open to expressing the fact that we have anxiety or we struggle with anxiety? Is it, is it an either or both end? Yeah. So I do think, especially when I think of my uh, son's generation, they are far readier to talk about these sort of things now at their age than I was at that age, you know, 30 years ago. So I do think there's more openness. And so it's, there's less stigma. It's just, this is just happening, you know, but I would also say that I think it is literally on the increase. I think the combination of the surprise of COVID and quarantining and how that changed so many of our lives in so many ways the ways in which I think that's also then connected to some of the political turmoil or cultural stresses that have come into vision for, for many of us. The amount of uncertainty about our futures uh, that so many feel with wars around our planet and financial uncertainties. I mean, I would say I think this has been for me as well as as a leader watching others, I think it's been one of our more anxious seasons uh, of of our history. And I'm in my 60s. And so there've been other times that were stressful, but anxiety in particular seems especially high these last few years. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'd say that that's been, been my experience too, just as I've reflected back over the years, it just feels like the the, the pacing of just life has increased to a level that just that pacing in itself creates an environment or a hotbed for anxiety to just to to take hold. So in in your book you you share your personal story which which is one of the things I love about your book is that um you know I I read a lot and um sometimes there's a disconnect from the author's content and what the author is talking about. Um, and then their personal experiences. And in the book, you share your story of, of dealing with anxiety. So g- give us a high-level review of how you've dealt with anxiety in your life. Yeah, well, I'm glad that that comes through. In Again, part of what happened in our 20s, we felt a calling from God that, in essence, our lives were going to be about sharing our lives with leaders. 
And in the end, sharing our lives includes sharing our struggles, our challenges. And so for me, I come by my anxiety rather honestly. My mom grew up in a post-World War II Midwestern orphanage from 4 to 14 with her big sister and her big brother. If you grow up in an orphanage, you learn anxiety. And that little girl grows up to have a firstborn son, me. And I learned our family way, which was anxiety. And I took that into my adult life and I took that into ministry. Now I'm in my 60s now. So if I'm blaming my 80 something mom for my anxieties, <laughs> I think I have a bigger problem than anxiety. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I heard Dallas Willard say one, more than once, you know, anything you could do in anxiety, you could do better in peace. Now, that's profound, I think. It's one of those time bomb sort of things Dallas used to say that would sneak its way back into your thinking and then blow up. But what was strange is when I heard that sentence, something in me balked. I wasn't sure I bought it. I mean, I knew I was supposed to buy it, but something in me was afraid that I wouldn't work as hard or reach the same standards if I didn't have my anxiety. Like I had come to see it somehow as an asset. Yeah. Almost like a badge you wear. Yeah. Almost a badge I wear or an engine that drives me. And gosh, if I don't have that engine, will I have anything uh, pressing me to do good work? And so that was one of the seeds of this book. And, and it was, it was a really helpful expose of my, how I kind of was treating anxiety. Like he was my, my, my wonderful counselor. Mm -hmm. when anxiety really isn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things you, you share in your book, which I think is uh, uh, maybe maybe the uh, Holy Spirit used in my life as a little bit of a, 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 of a guilt trip moment, but, <laughs> but you talk about those crazy devices that we have, that we all have, our cell phones, our, our tablets, our, our technology. How is that contributing to the bigger picture of anxiety? Yeah. Well, you know, you and I have been around long enough to remember phones only working if they were wired to walls, you know, and the I'm idea. Not I'm the, not quite sure I'm that old, but. Uh, no, okay. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, so I do. I'll, I no, do. I'll, be, I'll be a little ahead of you, but, you know, I can still remember my first phone number and it wasn't even seven digits. It had letters in it, you know, because wow. it was a local exchange. Anyway, we don't need to go too far down, but I have that benefit. I remember when you did not have this virtual omnipresence device mm -hmm. with you at all times. Yeah. And I think that the problem is that, I mean, as a servant, it is a remarkable thing. What it enables me to do that I can literally be just walking along and get a note from my friend in Rwanda and respond briefly to him. 30 years ago, that was not going to happen. Uh, that long distance call would have cost a chunk of a month's salary, I think. Right. But now I can literally with WhatsApp, just have a chat with them. And how are you? It's good to talk. So as a servant, it is a remarkable piece of equipment. As a master, it is tyrannical. And I think too many of us treat our phones as though we answer to them rather than that they answer uh, to us. With our social media and news feeds, we become aware of too much, I think more than we can manage, certainly more than we can address in any meaningful way. We see everybody else putting on their best face, and we're quite aware of our own not-so-great face. And so there's the anxiety of, do I measure up? Do I matter? Am I as good as all those other folks? I just think there's a lot of dynamics where this thing becomes our default mode. I got a moment. 
I'm not doing anything. Up comes the phone. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know how I, to be I've, bored. Right. So I, I do a lot of travel. And that's one thing I've been, since reading your book that I've been uber sensitive to is you just look around and it's good. It's a good exercise to do next time you go out to the mall. Well, if they even have malls anymore, but uh, if you go shopping, if you go to the airport, if you go uh, to a conference and there's a, you know, downtime or a break, immediately the entire room pulls out their devices and I'm guilty of it too. It's like there's dead space. I need to pull out my device and I need to somehow either pretend that I'm looking at it or I'm disengaging from wherever I am and, and focusing in on this. What, what are, so, so for those of us who are addicted to this, what are some of the warning signs that maybe your device is contributing to your anxiety? Yeah. Well, I think a, a really simple diagnostic you, experiment you could try is at a moment when you would normally be looking at your phone, one of those downtimes or whatever, don't, but pay attention to what happens in you when you don't. Yeah. And if you find anxiety rising, if you find that FOMO sort of, oh no, something's happening and I'm not in the middle of it. Yeah. You might wonder if that is a sign of something that you, you want to reconsider how available to your phone you want to be. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. One of the strategies you, you, you talk about, and, and obviously we turn to scripture all the time uh, for dealing with all kinds of issues in life, but uh, you reference uh, specifically the Apostle Paul in working through a very practical way of, of how to deal with anxiety. Walk us through that. Well, I think this is one of those passages Eugene Peterson was masterful in paraphrasing. So he says it this way. It's that, you know, don't worry, but pray. Counsel says, don't fret, don't worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So it's helped me to think that my, my anxiety is not something to try and get rid of or avoid. It is misguided energy. It's the energy of my care that is not living in the larger circle of God's care. So pointing the energy of anxiety in the direction of God rather than in the direction of worry or rumination has been really critical for me. Because I writing this book, I did not find the plateau of peace where never again do I feel anxious. I still feel anxious a lot. Yeah, yeah. 
We, I had a, we, we're, I was at a conference recently and the speaker was uh, an author of a book and he was more of a, he took a research approach to, to the issue of anxiety. And, and he mm-hmm. also shared the story of struggling uh, with anxiety and a Christ follower. And one of the things that he mm-hmm. said, I think was, was very, very helpful is we treat anxiety like it's a, like it's a disease or a sickness that we want it to go away. And yeah. we're wired that way, right? If we have a mm-hmm. deficiency, if we have, cause worry can uh, lead to sin, right? So, so we want a cure. We want a solution. We want this bad thing to go away. And so we treat it as if it is something that can go away. And his whole point and strategy, which I really appreciated was don't think about it as going away from it, but actually going through it and having the tools to be able to go through anxiety, as opposed to trying to treat it like it's something that you're trying to push away or to move away or to treat. Do you resonate with that? Yes, I really do. I mean, this may be sort of Augustine, you know, but I think that every evil thing is just a good thing that got bent. It's been misdirected. So rather than getting rid of the bad thing, I think a better question is, what was that bad thing supposed to be? What was anxiety, for example? What are these cares in me? What are they supposed to be? How could they be something beautiful and fruitful in God? And I think this kind of gets to the idea that, you know, even in the New Testament, the word for anxiety can be translated care, like Paul's care for all the churches. Well. Isn't that interesting? Maybe my anxiety is sort of misguided care. And maybe instead of getting rid of anxiety, I could figure out what what does that care look like in communion with God and in service of others? That's a different approach. Which adds so much depth too, even to Christ as the great physician too. Some of those those words that are used in how uh, Christ and the role that he plays in helping us through issues like anxiety. One of the things you talk about in the book, actually, there's, I already shared, there's a lot that perhaps, just perhaps was convicted of, but you talk about two words, dependence and surrender. Those who struggle with anxiety, I think just me mentioning those words of dependence and surrender produce and start to give anxiety. Why are these concepts so important for us when we're handling or walking through anxiety? Yeah, that that is counterintuitive uh, for sure. I, I appreciate that. I, I think the point I'm trying to make, and this is my experience, is that the opposites of, you know, something like dependence or surrender are something like, for example, self-promotion or pride. But pride doesn't always come in that brash, arrogant, self-promoting form. It also comes in a more self-deprecating form. But a lot of my anxiety is sort of me turned in on myself. It's sort of what care looks like when God's not in the picture. And that's one definition for pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I've actually found that right-sizing my sense of responsibility and right-sizing my sense of relationship with God, I am not an owner managing my stuff. I am a steward managing that which belongs to God, including my life. That has actually been a shift that leads to greater peace for me. I think that self-responsibility sort of thing is a very burdensome way to live. 
And I actually think that coming to appropriate dependence on a God who lovingly cares for us or surrender to a God who lovingly leads and counsels us is freeing, whereas my imagined omnipotence makes my life pretty heavy with anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I like that imagined omnipotence. I, that's that's so true. We, we replace God, uh, who is, with, with ourselves, and we know that the formula of that is disaster and failure every single time. Okay, so I buy it. I understand it. What are some practical things that we can do to recognize that we do have a dependence on God, that we do need to replace instead of ourselves on the throne of our lives? It's God on the throne of our lives. What are some practical things that we can do? Yeah. Well, I will tell you one for sure that has been a great gift to me. So like I said, I wrote this book kind of half hoping somehow I would get to the spot where I don't feel anxious anymore, where emotions and thoughts and literal physical sensations of anxiety would somehow cease. And I never found that spot. I don't think I will. But what I can do is learn to practice God's presence when I'm feeling anxious. Like when that thing crosses my path that surprises me unpleasantly, and I feel the physical sensations, the mental sensations, the emotional sensations of anxiety, maybe especially when I feel them like 90 out of 100, what will I do? Well, my habit in the past many times was to ruminate and to worry and to perseverate and to get circled in on my teeny tiny self, try and figure out how to get my way forward. But it has helped me. This was a line that Dallas Willard loved to remember, which was just the simple start of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's very different than the counsel of anxiety, which says you are alone and you are going to want. You only have yourself to count on. That's at least what my anxiety often says. So I have literally found myself you know, in a moment where something crosses my path. I feel the anxiety rise and I'm learning to practice in that moment. Right now, feeling as I do, I have a good shepherd. This is probably going to turn out differently than anxiety predicts. And what's been nice over time is to learn how wrong anxiety is so very often about what is likely to come next. It's, it's more like a false prophet, in my experience, than a wonderful counselor. Yeah. That yeah. has really made a difference for me. Yeah. So it's almost like you have mechanisms or when that moment of, of anxiety trigger happens that there's a there there's an automatic stopping of the unraveling and 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 focusing fixating on not the issue but on scripture as a very powerful way to do that i often say we never worry best case scenarios whenever we worry it's always the absolute 180 degree opposite of whatever the scenario is and it is just going to be awful and in our yeah. experience, how frequently actually does the worst case scenario happen? It, it rarely happens. So it's rarely. Yeah, it's some deviation off of it, but yet we fixate and then we draw conclusions. So if this happens, well, then this will happen. Then if that happens, then this. So now we've put together this entire false narrative and drawing conclusions off of false assumptions. And we've at that point unraveled and stepped right into stepped right into anxiety. 
That's my experience too. And it, another way I would say it is my big problem is that I worry about my worry instead of praying about my worry. <clears throat> and then I worry about worrying about my worry. And then I just really get in the mess. Yeah. Off of your experience, what, at what point, you know, scripture is definitely obviously helpful, even talking about the apostle Paul. And I grew up in a context of just pray about it and read scripture and you'll, you'll get through it for, for listeners who do struggle with anxiety. What, at what point, like, what are the signals to say, you know what, there's some great resources out there. There are people, yeah. there are counselors, there are therapists. Where does it start to cross that line to say, okay, you, you probably need somebody to walk alongside you with this? Yeah. Well, I appreciate that because the tradition I began my, my faith journey in would have been pretty anti-counselor or anti-psychology. <clears throat> but what I want to say is there is help available. And I don't think any of us can do this journey alone in any part of it, not just in crisis sort of moments. I don't think we were meant to be solitary in our way of living in, in, in God. So I will say I have needed and benefited from counsel of all kinds, multiple sorts of therapies. I've needed that help. I have needed medical help at times when anxiety got so loud and so debilitating that without that, I don't know how I would have made my way forward. I'm just glad that there are Jesus followers trained in other modes of help who can come alongside me and help me in this journey. I need that. Yeah. So well said. So well said. Um, the listeners, uh, yeah, this is ABHE represents biblical higher education. We have others outside biblical higher education, Christian higher education, and even beyond that who tune in and, and listen to this podcast. So you have a you have an open audience, which interestingly enough, as I've been on college campuses and as we've uh, done our leadership development conferences, specifically in the student development area, anxiety on college campuses is just absolutely, I remember when I was on a college campus in leadership, we had one counselor for a campus of 1,500 students. And, you know, it was barely a counselor. You know, it was somebody who, you know, loved Jesus and loved to talk to people. And fast forward to where we are today, and you have entire departments of full-time counselors on our campuses. So this is a very real issue that our colleges are, are, are dealing with. So with that as a context, with the audience that's listening in, what's the one thing that you want them to know about helping those around them deal with anxiety? Yeah. Well, like I said, my sons are kind of in that age cohort, maybe grad student age now, but I, I want to say, and this is something your listeners already know, that anxiety is real. Uh, it's very real, and it's maybe more real now than it's been in any other point in my adult life. But the presence of God and the peace of God is more real. And one of the great gifts we can give to those we serve, you know, students, for example, is to live in the peace of our Good Shepherd, to embody that, to be a non-anxious presence in our interactions with students, to be a peaceful presence for those who are struggling profoundly with anxiety. Students need us to demonstrate our confident trust in God that is as strong as our belief in God, and that is stronger than our anxieties in our world. And so 
I'm always saying, whether it's to leaders in education or in church or in nonprofits or business or wherever, that the great gift you give to the people you serve is your own life deepening in communion with the Prince of Peace. That'll make a great difference in the lives we get to serve. Yeah, yeah. Living by example. And also, I think that generational element, because I still, I still face it of, oh, this generation is so soft. And when we grew up, we just had to suck it up. And, you know, it's, it's always, you know, it, people came back from World War II and didn't deal with these things. Well, recognizing that you have a college campus full of people who are dealing with anxiety and recognizing it and talking about it goes a long way to creating an environment where people can actually deal with this, especially if we're setting them on a trajectory to go into ministry kinds of contexts because they're going to be working with hurting people, right? Yes, they are. And so to come alongside them and help them discover the great confidence they can have in a shepherd who is always present, who leads them to good places, right in the presence of their enemies, to use the Psalm 23 language, like anxiety as an enemy, it won't go away, but you can learn to find, even in its presence, a sense of goodness and mercy surrounding you and following you. That, that can save us, I think, from our overwhelming anxieties. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, we're coming to the end of our episode here. We have about a minute left. And I'd love for you to just kind of give us a, a, a high-level summary of your ministry, unhurriedliving.com, and some of the resources that you have and, and are available for people. Well, you know, you can come and visit us at our website, unhurriedliving.com. We have a little 40-day unhurried daily resource you can sign up for. It's a very small little email. It'll take you a few seconds to read, not even minutes. We have uh, our own podcast where I'm talking with authors, writing on similar themes, and I'm sharing messages to help people enter into the rhythms of work and rest that we see in Jesus. That's, I really see all of this as a discipleship dynamic, not just a personal self-care dynamic. I think following Jesus and his easy yoke is the way forward in our difficult world. So a lot of what we do in a lot of different ways is designed to help Christians enter into the unhurried way of Jesus. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Alan, and uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, and your experiences. And for me personally, thank you for writing that book. And uh, it, uh, God used it to, to challenge me in a, in a couple of areas. So uh, I, I trust that that's a, a good resource for people who are listening today. And like Alan said, if you would like more information about uh, what he does, his book, and we will put a link uh, to the book in our uh, show description if you're interested in, in looking at that or go to his uh, website, unhurriedliving.com, where you can find out more about his ministry and what he does. So until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. 
Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.